with you on this uh, eve of a new year. So we have weathered a year um, this last year, and God has been gracious to us and kind and merciful. Uh, and now we have this express privilege today of having a service where we are installing a new ruling elder. Um, he has been a ruling elder in the past in another PCA church, but he will be installed officially in this church. And so I know that I've been preaching through Luke, or I've tried to preach through Luke, but I'm taking a short detour. And so what I wanted to do today is I wanted to preach on 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 to 7, because it is the requirements of an elder that the Bible lays out. Now, I hope and I assume that when Wes was nominated and when you voted for him that you believe that he meets these requirements. I do, and otherwise I wouldn't, the elders wouldn't have put him before you. But it is a good thing for Wes and for myself and Matt to hear what the actual requirements that the Lord Jesus lays down through the Apostle Paul are. And so, I'd like to, if you have your Bibles, we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 to 7. Just going to do a, a brief introduction, and then from there, what I want to do is go into a background of this book, and then ultimately, um, we'll open up this text together after I read it and we pray. So I want you to think back with me on your Christian experience in the church. In the, in the churches you've been at, who was the best elder that you ever had, and why? I'm sure that you probably, if you've been in the church for a while, have met many elders. But what makes an elder a good elder? There is, of course, the right performance of the duties of the office. But there is, is there something deeper than just doing the actual duties of the office, isn't there? What we're going to see today is that the requirements for an elder are really the characteristics of Jesus. The requirements of the elder are really the characteristics of Jesus. Let that sink in. Not only must elders have these characteristics, but actually all Christians should willingly seek to conform to the image of Christ, regardless of whether or not they are going to be an elder. Today, we're going to look at 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, under three headings, the prerequisites of being an elder, the detailed requirements of an elder, and, believe it or not, a charge to you all to actually strive to conform yourself to those characteristics. Before I get into the text, I just want a little background, for, to give you a little background of Paul's letter to, of 1 Timothy to Timothy. Um, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, a young pastor and a co-laborer for the gospel, in about 62 to 63 AD. It was a little bit before he died. And he wrote it from Macedonia at the end of his life. Timothy was facing a very heavy burden of responsibility at the church of Ephesus that had been invaded by false teachers. Okay, so the context of the book is false teachers were in the church. The reading that we had from Acts chapter 20 outlined that. Paul actually warned the elders at Ephesus that there would be false teachers amongst them. There would be wolves that would come in to destroy the people. 
And so the letter of 1 Timothy is actually a guard against that. And so the point of the letter was to encourage Timothy to confront false doctrine, to remove false doctrine from the church in order to safeguard and order the public worship and also to develop mature leadership. So actually you can think of this letter as a manual to Timothy to effectively guide him in his responsibility of leading the church. And so he was helping him in his responsibility of being a good example to others, of exercising his own spiritual gifts, and actually fighting the good fight of faith. Paul was actually telling Timothy to refute error and to teach the truth. In the immediate context of the requirements for elders from 2, 8 to 15, Paul explains to Timothy by God's creational order that spiritual authority within the church is to be exercised by men. And it naturally flows then to the requirements of those who God would call to exercise spiritual authority in the church. And that is elders and overseers. Let me read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Father, we need your help. We need you... Father and Lord Jesus, to pour your spirit out upon us, to give us eyes to understand and wills to submit to your word. Lord, we cannot understand your word without the illumination of the spirit, so I pray that you give it. I pray that my words would be accurate, would be according to your word, what you want Christ Presbyterian Church to hear. Thank you so much for your love, and we pray that you would help us to find delight as we really look at what elders are supposed to be like, but ultimately who Jesus is. We thank you and we praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's go ahead and look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. The first thing that you should see here in verse 1 is the prerequisites of an elder. Quite simply, you could summarize this by saying that an elder is to be a male, to have desire and a right view of the office. Now, to some, it might be clear and go without saying that an elder must be a male. But the reality is, to others, it's not so clear. So what does the Bible say? Because that's our authority. The, our authority is not what I say. It's not what the Presbyterian Church in America says, although we submit ourselves to it. But it's what God says. And so if he says it, we have to submit to it. So what does it say? Well, the clearest place in the Bible where the requirements for an elder are set down is actually 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, to 
and Titus 1, 5-9. And now this isn't to say, when I say that elders here are to be male, that women are inferior to men in any way, or that they don't possess the Spirit, that they don't possess wisdom, or the gifts to lead, but simply that God designed men to lead the church in and by, as it's shown, the very design of creation. This is what Paul laid out in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 8-15. to He gives the creation order that Adam was made first and then Eve, and he lays that out in context. Now, Galatians 3, 25-29, Paul explains that before God, in regard to salvation and faith, there is no distinction between male and female. In other words, all people, whether men or women, are united to Christ by faith and are equally valuable in God's eyes. They are children of God. Yet, just like Jesus, this is, ladies, I need you to hear. Just like Jesus, who in his being was no less than God, he was God, submitted himself to the leadership of the Father. And so, actually, within the church, women who, have to, who submit to the leadership of the church by males actually are doing what Jesus did. Father, I don't do anything unless you tell me to do. That was Jesus' part. He submitted to the Father. Now, in this particular passage, this requirement for being a male is found in the first verse with the gender of anyone being masculine, the second verse of the requirement of, in the Greek, it's actually technically a man of one woman. In the original language, it is a man of one woman. It doesn't say a spouse of one. And then the various forms and ver- of, uh, the genders of the various verbs throughout the passage. So what these all show, along with the previous chapter, is that spiritual authority is found in the elders and the eldership is for males. But what I want to say, what I want, you, what I want you to understand this, is that this does not mean that women are not as wise as men. That's actually not what this is saying. It doesn't mean that women can't lead more effectively than men. That's not what this is saying. This is essentially saying in 1 Timothy 2, leading into this, is that this is just simply the way that God designed it for So, in a sense, it's a submission thing. Just like we have to submit to Jesus, we have to submit to what the Word says. And so, it can be difficult in this world right now, which is very egalitarian, and says there's no distinction between the sexes, right? The world speaks of this. But the reality is, is that God has a design and has an order of creation. So if you are hearing, if you're a woman here, and I'm not a woman, so it's easier for me to say this, right? You have to hear it if you're late. The reality is, is this is just simply what God says is the creation order. That's it. So the question becomes is, can you submit to what God says? Not that you're inferior. And I will just go on to say, is, is that elders who don't listen to the women of the church are just silly and ridiculous. Because you all, everyone here, has the Holy Spirit who is united to Christ. And if the elders of the church are not listening to the women of the church, they're, they're fools. I don't know how else to say it. Right? So, verse 1 also shows us that it is not a problem for a man to desire the office of an overseer. 
or perhaps to aspire or seek the office. The original language actually uses a word that implies reaching out one's hand for someone, something. So what the Bible's teaching here is, is that it's not a problem for a man to reach out to desire the office of an elder. That's not somehow, it's not pious to say, well, I don't really want it, but somebody's going to say I should take it. That's not pious. It doesn't earn you any points. So it isn't a problem for a man to desire or seek an office of an elder. In fact, it seems to be one of the prerequisites. A man must want the office. If he doesn't want the office, he shouldn't be in the office. There is nothing pious about not desiring the office and then taking it because you're asked. That's not holy. Hey, take this office because we want you. That's not holy. The man who would become, be an elder must think that the office is a noble work. An elder also has to have the right view of the office. He must understand that the office of elder or overseer, sometimes called bishop or shepherd, is a noble office. But why is it noble? 1 Peter 2.25, we see that Jesus is called the shepherd and overseer. Jesus Christ himself is referred to as that similar word, overseer, the overseer of our souls. Jesus is the one who oversees or cares for our souls. This is why the work is noble. An elder is literally shepherding the souls of God's people. In fact, 1 Peter implies that elders are to shepherd the flock, exercising oversight under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. In other words, elders are shepherds who are to oversee or care for God's people just like Jesus. And so, an elder must view himself as a man who, is not, who has been called by Jesus to shepherd Jesus' people the way that Jesus would shepherd him. If he views it in any other way, he is not, in any other way, he is not viewing the author properly. So, West. First Peter 5, and I'll give this exhortation during installation. Matt, myself, speaking to myself. We are to shepherd the flock and oversee the soul of every precious soul in the flock with the same care that Jesus Christ cared for your soul. That is a task that cannot be done without the Spirit. It is a task that is too much for a mortal man. You must pray every day, rely upon the power of Jesus Christ to do that work that Jesus has called you. Our second point is found in verses 2 to 7, where they see a detailed requirements of an elder. And you can summarize this simply, actually summarize it completely as being above reproach. The original language is irreproachable. What does it mean to be irreproachable? Well, it means that he must not be in a position where he is open to attack from other word, others. In other words, he is not worthy of rebuke or, uh, or criticism. So, if you are open to rebuke and criticism from others, you are not above reproach. You are not irreproachable. And thus, at a high level, the elder should not be able to be charged with any failures, this is the passage, any failures in their marriage, any failures in their character and demeanor, 
any failures in their family life, any failures in their spiritual maturity, or any failures that the community would see. Those are five areas that Paul's Paul outlines. That's a lot. So let's dig into those. The first part of verse 2 shows us the first area that an elder should be above reproach in, his marriage. Quite literally, the text says, the overseer must be a man of one woman. And this is what it means to be above reproach in marriage. To be an elder, a man must have singular faithfulness. Why? Because marriage represents the proclamation of what Christ is to his bride, the church. An elder is a representative of Christ, the overseer of our souls. And elders are shepherds who must live as faithful representatives of Christ. If a man is not a faithful witness in the one relationship in his life that is to represent the church's union with Christ, then he has no business representing Christ to God. The faithfulness of a man to his wife ultimately speaks to the faithfulness and singularity of Christ to his bride, the church. It seems that the most obvious conclusion is that an elder must be faithful to his one wife. And so this faithfulness, of course, includes not, not having a second wife or a mistress. That's just a given. A man of one woman. But it would also include the avoidance of any form of sexual immorality or abandonment. It would include physical adultery, inappropriate emotional attachment of any form to another woman, pornography, physical abuse, intentional and or perpetual undermining the image of God in his spouse. You know what this means? If you treat your wife bad, you can't be an elder. If you treat your wife like she's below you, like she's not made in the image of God, you have no business being an elder. You can't have harshness. You can't have general neglect. And you can't have a cold and dead heart toward your spouse. In other words, the elder must be a faithful witness to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ toward the church. Verses 2b to 3 show us the second area that an elder should be above reproach in, his personal character and demeanor. There's nine different ideas that I don't have time to like dig in deeply. So I wrote my sermon. I have a sermon manuscript. I wrote my sermon manuscript. And when I ended the sermon manuscript, it was 17 pages. And that's massive. And I was like, oh my goodness, I just cannot dig that deep into these requirements. So I'm going to high level them and give a brief paragraph for each one. So the first thing we see is that his character is that to be sober-minded or temperate. Uh, this more than likely means that he is to be restrained in his conduct. He's level-headed. A bunch of commentators and things, even in the word itself, might actually mean sober, like not getting drunk. I think, and, and you see that actually later, no, not to be drunken. So the idea of sober, when they, when they put those together and saw not to be drunk later, they were like, oh, well, it probably means sober-minded. In other words, clear in his thought and his mind. Um, the second thing we see is that he's to be self-controlled. It more than likely means that he avoids extremes. You know, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Like people who go extreme to something. An elder is to be one who takes careful consideration and acts responsibly. Like, do you want somebody to spiritually guide your church who, does, is, who acts on extremes? Probably not, right? 
Okay. The third thing we see is that he is to be respectable. He has an outer balance that reflects the person that he is on the inside. In other words, he gives a, a, a he gives out a, an air of consistent holiness. So when you look at me, when you look at the other elders, you should say, hey, I think that's a holy man, a pious man, a man who's following after God. You see, people see the holiness of his life and they give honor or they respect him for it. They look at his life and say, that man is worthy of honor because he lives a life that looks like Jesus. The fourth thing we see is that he is hospitable. This word is actually a compound word that is the lover of stra- a lover of strangers. He's willing to use his own to open his home to minister to the needy, to those who are in help, to those who need a place to stay. In general, he welcomes strangers and treats them with love and respect. The fifth thing we see is that he's able to teach. He can skillfully explain the basics of the faith. He can prepare others to join the church, counsel them biblically and relationally toward Christ. He can answer people's questions about the faith in a way that they understand. The sixth thing is that he is not to be a drunkard. He does not and will not get drunk if he does drink, especially not when he's actively ministering the church. You know, the the, the Leviticus, in the Old Testament, there's the story of two priests who die. Do you know what immediately follows that story? It says, They shouldn't drink while they're doing their service. The theory that I have about that passage is the guys were drunk and mixed up strange incense that God did because they had to use certain things for the incense before God, and they mixed up strange incense or strange fire to God, and they they, they, they died because of it. And so afterwards, God's like, hey, while you're doing your... so, So what does this mean? It means I shouldn't be tipping the bottle, certainly while I'm preparing sermon, or right before I go and visit you all, or whatever. (laughs) <laughs> afterwards still shouldn't be tipping the bottle maybe maybe sipping a little bit but not tipping um <laughs> sorry i gotta recover from that one all right the seventh thing is that he is not to be violent but gentle oh by the way i want to go back to that um we understand that Jesus turned water into wine and, and alcohol is not sinful in and of itself. It's the use of it that is wrong. I have no problem drinking a beer or whatever, but I only drink one. This has been my rule for my life. I don't have beer in my fridge usually. I just don't keep it there. But my point is this, and I know some people think this is sin. I don't think the scripture teaches it, right? but you shouldn't you shouldn't take something to extreme, right? You should know the alcohol content of what you're drinking. And you should know your body. This is a problem when you don't control yourself. And so sometimes we have to set rules that say, I will not go deep. Even if you think you might. You know what, brothers and sisters, this just doesn't apply to me. It applies to every drunk. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, 
after I say that, I'll say one thing. You are a witness to outside. So if you have people coming into your house, you also have to consider Romans 14. If you have people coming into your house, you may not want to bring alcohol, right? Because it could offend them. It could hurt them. It could cause them to question the faith. And Paul says, I won't eat meat if it's going to cause somebody to stop. So if any of you, this is the reality of being elder, if any of you had a big problem with me drinking occasionally, once in a, and occasionally doesn't mean every weekend, right? Some people have a weird definition for occasion. I would stop for your sake. I would. It's not worth it. Your souls are not worth it. So if you said to me, hey, I heard that in your sermon, but I really don't think you should ever drink, okay, I can give it up. Because I'm not addicted to it. I'm not controlled by it. You see, this is the point. This is what Paul's getting at. Now, be gentle. The idea is that an elder is not aggressive. Rather, he is able to get along with others for the sake of ministry, of unity, and of harmony. He is not a bully. An elder is not a bully. An elder is kind. An elder is tolerant. An elder is yielding. He is wise and gentle as he leads, as he leads others. The eighth thing is that he is not quarrelsome. He is not censorious, argumentative, inflexible, or narrow-minded. He doesn't enjoy getting into fights or battles. He doesn't enjoy getting into theological sparring with people. That's not the point. He wants others to come to know Christ. And so he is he doesn't like to battle. But when he needs to battle, he battles. Finally, the ninth thing is that he is not a lover of money. In other words, he is free from the pool of materialism. He's able and he's willing to live off whatever God gives him and be content with it. In other words, he has a healthy detachment from material wealth, but not irresponsibility. He is the model of generosity and simplicity of lifestyle because he knows that all that he has is God's. And he trusts God with what God has given him. Now, most of these requirements would actually apply to any believer. So what this means is that the elder is simply a model believer or a model follower of Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. You see, it only makes sense that someone who is to lead God's people should be a model of Christian character. If a man does not have some of these character traits or is not free from these other character traits, then he's disqualified from the office. The point is not to set an impossibly high bar but quite simply to ensure that the shepherds are shepherding themselves so that they can shepherd others. In other words, your overseers should be model followers of Jesus so that they can say, follow me as I follow Jesus. There should not be an area of my life as an elder that I can't say, do what I do. If I have an area, I have sanctification and death to self. That's the reality. Verses 4 to 5 show us the third area that an elder must be above reproach in. That's his family life. But we not only see here how, but why. You see, the overall, the elder is to direct, lead, and rule or manage his own household or house well or correctly. 
He is to lead his house in the appropriate way or the right way. And how is that? Excellent. Now, how does he do it? Two ways. First, by leading his children in such a way that they are in submission to him. In other words, his children are under control. Second, he does it in such a way that is done with all dignity. In other words, his children behave in a manner of behavior such that they are above what is ordinary in our culture. Now, in other words, the way he leads his family and the way they act and behave is worthy of special respect from those around him. In other words, the elders' kids, people should be able to say, hey, those must be Christian children. Well, they must be children that are following God. No, I mean, you can't change your kids' hearts, brothers and sisters. You can't do that. But you can certainly lead them and guide them so that they walk and follow the moral law and respect you and respect your household and the rules of the household. Because the world doesn't do that. So, why does it matter? If he doesn't know how to direct his own house, how can he, fare, he, how can he care for God's house? That's the conclusion. It's a house, This is God's house. If he doesn't know how to do his own house, how is he going to be able to help and others in their house? The family is the church and the home. You know that. The family is the church and the home. It is the proving ground of a man's ministry and evidence of the spiritual condition of his domestic life. Bad husbands and bad fathers make for bad pastors and bad elders. Bad husbands and bad fathers make for bad pastors and bad elders. I believe that the bottom line of this requirement is that a chaotic household is a household that either is not walking with the Lord or is in need of time and energy spent by the father lovingly and gently leading his family into following and obeying. In other words, if your house is a mess, it doesn't mean that you're not following Jesus. But it might mean you need to spend some time in your house and help fix it up. And so a chaotic household may be a sign that the pastor elder might need to spend some more time at home ordering it instead of in the church, making sure that the church is good. You, you, you understand this? If I spend all my time or, trying to order this church and I don't order my own household, it's a problem. It's bad affection. The heart turned the wrong way. Verse 6 shows us the fourth area that an elder must be approaching, and that's spiritual maturity. Basically, an elder is not to be a new convert or a newly planted, or newly planted, you could use that term, in the Christian community. In other words, the elder is not to be a neophyte of the faith. The office of elder, listen, is a very dangerous thing. The man who is ordained or installed as an elder is putting himself under strict judgment. A new convert can easily become puffed up or full of pride. When this happens, there's danger that he will fall in a similar way of the devil. That's what this means. See, in fact, it was for his pride that the devil was condemned. A new convert could easily fall into the same judgment that the devil had because he could become filled with pride instead of living like Jesus did in humility. And so I would argue that spiritual maturity, though, also includes emotional maturity. If a man does not know who he is in Christ, and he's not deeply rooted in his identity in Christ, he may use the eldership to try and find his identity, and so do damage in the church. An elder must be both emotionally and spiritually mature. And a lot of times you get elders who come in who have a good knowledge of the word, but they're emotional neophytes. So they don't know how to handle their own emotions. And they use the church as a way 
to feel good about themselves and find their identity instead of having their identity rooted in Christ. Finally, verse 7 shows us the fifth and last area that an elder must be above reproach in, his relationship with the outside world, the external community. You see, even the unconverted must see him as, in the least, a genuine, earnest, and honorable religious man. The community ultimately judges the church by its officers. If the officers do not represent Christ clearly and in a way that the world can see Jesus in them, they will want nothing to do with the church. If an elder does not behave himself like a Christian, one who's following Christ, in his business dealings with the world, then he will fall into disgrace and land in the trap of the devil. It will more than likely destroy him, it will destroy his family, and it will possibly destroy the church. The reality is, is that no one within reason should be able to give a reason why an elder is disqualified from all. Did you hear that? No one within reason should be able to give any reason why an elder is disqualified from all. may not like it may not like what he believes, but that doesn't mean that he's disqualified. But if he's stealing pencils from work, right, he's disqualified. Oh, if all, if all they know from you is you're the guy who takes pens, then you probably are disqualified. It's, it sounds funny, but it's not. You shall not steal. Commandments of the Lord. We have to obey them. All right. So this is a rather long list, isn't it? It seems daunting. But it is actually a list that every single one of you should seek to emulate. Why? Because this list is a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of your Savior, whom we desire to emulate and whose image we are to conform to. So I want to just spend the rest of my time just thinking about Jesus. First, Jesus is our faithful husband. His affections are for his bride. He actively and faithfully loves us and leads us in the way that we should go, always caring for us and never abandoning us for another. Jesus is sober-minded. Throughout his life, he refused to do anything but the will of his Father in heaven. He did not stray from the course he was to take. He didn't try to numb the pain he was experiencing, but rather he lived out God's will no matter the cost. Jesus was self-controlled. He went for 40 days in the wilderness and when tempted to make bread from rocks to push God's hand at protecting him or to rule the world without his death and resurrection, he refused it. He bore temptation and walked in absolute self-control. Jesus walked in a way that was honorable. He did nothing to bring shame upon his Father or himself. All that he did, whether he ate or whether he drank, was to the glory of the Father. Jesus was and is hospitable. He always welcomed strangers. He went to strangers' homes. He healed them. He he invited the lame and the blind and beggars to come and join him so that they could be forever with him. Right? Jesus' greatest act of hospitality is dying on the cross so you and I could be with him in his home forever. Talk about hospitality. Dying so that you could hang out with him. Jesus died so you could hang out with him, so I could hang out with him. That is hospitality. We were strangers, aliens from the commonwealth. And Jesus died so that you and I could be with him. Jesus is the great teacher. He not only taught what was true and right, but he taught it as one having authority. For what he taught, he knew. For he is the wisdom itself and the wisdom and power of God. Jesus was not a drunkard, but chose to associate with them like many other religious people wouldn't. He went to them to try to deliver them from their addictions and the pain that they were trying to numb away. Jesus is meek and lowly of heart, gentle and kind. 
He shows mercy to those whom the Father gives him, even telling a man on the cross next to him that he would be with him in paradise. A smoldering wick he will not extinguish, of whose grief will not. Jesus was not a man who quarreled. He opposed the Pharisees because they were blind guides, but didn't pick fights with them. He opposed them when it was beneficial for the sake of other souls. Jesus is not a lover of money. Though he was king and ruler of all, he just he left heaven, took upon flesh, and lived a life that was not rich or wealthy, but emptied himself, making himself a servant for our sake. He became poor so you could be rich. Jesus manages his own household well. He does it through his word and spirit. He cares for the church by giving himself up for it, by bearing its sin and judgment to the point of death on a cross. He leads us by his spirit into more holiness and conforms us to his image every day. And finally, Jesus is the uh, one more after this. Jesus is the ancient of days. He does not need to be taught and does not ever have to worry about becoming a God. For even though he was God, he did not count equality with God as something to be great, but emptied himself of his glory and became a servant for our sake, so that we might come to know his love and kindness. Finally, Jesus is also well thought of by Even though they may not believe in him, the world sees him as a good man who taught a way of life that was filled with love and compassion. Though the world may hate him, they cannot say anything disgraceful about him that is true. We apply it, and we done. If you are a child, remember these things. If you're young, remember these things, and seek to be conformed to Jesus at a young age. Don't make mistakes like these, and find yourself later in life look, not looking like Jesus, because you didn't seek to conform yourself to his image. Men, you should strive to look like Jesus in these ways. Even if you are not called, or you don't want to be an elder, that's fine but you should strive to follow Jesus so that you are conformed to his image in these ways and others could look at you and say, that could be an element, even though you're not called. Women, even though you are not able to become an elder, our denomination, what we believe and what we think scripture teaches, you should seek to have these characteristics in you. These are not specifically male characteristics, but are characteristics of disciples. Jesus has called you to service and ministry in the church. Though it is not spiritual authority, he has called you to teach and counsel other women in the church and use your spiritual gifts to share the gospel of Jesus and teach those whom God has put in your path. If you would like to be a spiritual leader of women and feel called to be, come and see me or the other elder. Because in 2024, we would like to provide a training program for women to become a part of spiritually shepherding and teaching the women of the church. So I am hoping to teach that. There's curriculum from the Presbyterian Church of America. And then from there, I'm hoping to be able to find a lady who then can teach it after me. Because I think it would be much better that the ladies talk to ladies how to shepherd other women and not me, but you got to prime the pump at some point. So I'm going to prime the pump, and then, I, and then hopefully God will bring forward some women who can do that and be shepherding and be leaders within this church. Uh, for the women in the church. Elders, Matt, soon to be blessed. Look to yourself and see if you are walking in conformity to these. If you are not, repent of it and seek to conform your life 
to these things. Also, talk to your elders, your other elders, and get help and prayer so that you can be above. Father, the word is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. We need your help. We cannot meet requirements that you lay out unless you give them us the grace to do so. Would you help each and every person in this congregation to walk and to live in a way that pleases you and honors you? May we all look like Jesus in every way to form ourselves to We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Wes, are you ready?